Man, you gonna make everybody up there wide open. The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. All right, it's that time again. Feels like it was just last week we were doing the show. Uh, we're doing it again now. The Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. I'm your host, Jay Goodwin, from the Rare Barrel. We're back home, Brewing Network Studios in downtown Concord. Um, here with Scott, who set up kind of the the sour podcast of the century last week. Like so much sour beer talent in one room, it was crazy. So I'm a little worried about how, topping ourselves going forward, though, because we basically reached the pinnacle on episode ten. Yeah, eleven. Eleven. Well, it's ten in my world where we're one behind all the <laughs> you time. You want to bet on that? <laughs> uh, so where are we going from here? You know, lots of more great info. I think there's so many ways to go. Um, that show was almost. It's like almost too packed. You know, it's like. I that was our I think our longest show by a minute or two and uh, I easily could have gone like three times as long. I mean, all we touched on and this, I say all we touched on, but we touched a lot on um, spontaneous fermentation. And just to take it a step back, our last show was um, with uh, Russian River, Cantillon, and Allagash uh, the day before their Wild Friendship blend event. Um, which is a blend of each of their different uh, spontaneously fermented beers. Um, so, yeah, or also known as a Beer Geek's Wet Dream, basically. So we tasted uh, the new version that was uh, blended at Allagash, or the U.S. version. Um, we also tasted the uh, Belgian version. That was, origi- that was the first one that was blended at Cantillon. And these are beers that are only um, consumed at the events that the brewers pour at. So, really, the first beer was only tasted once before, and now the second beer that they brewed, uh, it was the debut of it the next day at Russian River, and then they also had some of the first beer, too. So, we were just, uh, we were incredibly lucky, not just to be able to put that show on tape, but to be there to try those beers is a special moment. Yeah, and I loved how everybody was able to uh, sort of pick out the individual flavors of the all the breweries that were involved and even we took uh Vinny was a very generous guy He's nice enough to send us home with a couple of uh, bottles and uh I think uh, our general manager Kevin referred to it as a a white unicorn beer something <laughs> along the lines of I mean if there's a white whale this is a step past that I, I mean yeah you, I, you won't find it on eBay that they don't sell the, they don't sell the bottles yeah period um and to just have a uh, yeah a bottle to take home that's that's a really big deal because they're not even giving a lot of those bottles out for off premise consumption. They want to be there when the beer is consumed. It's not to kind of like drive the hype of the beer or whatever. There's plenty of hype behind those breweries anyway. Uh, I think it's more because you know the blend was made in the spirit of friendship and they want to be all there together enjoying the the fruits of their labor with a bunch of people who can really geek out about spontaneous beer. Um, and not have it, you know, sitting in people's cellar for a long time. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so we had um, very fortunately uh, a couple of bottles that we came home with, and uh, so our, our staff uh, tried it here after the session on Monday, and uh, a lot of them were even saying that they could kind of yeah, I could pick out beatification and I could mm-hmm. taste Cantillon here, and uh, I'm admittedly I'm, I'm a step behind palate wise. I don't know that I could pick out individual flavors or that I know Allagash sour beers well enough to uh, announce that I do, but they did. Did you? I didn't. I mean, but I just know that both of those beers were really good. But it was interesting to hear them taste through it. And I think, uh, you know, Vinny and Rob mentioned that that was the first time they had had those beers side by side. So it was live on the Sour Hour, which was really cool to get their feedback uh, on a live tasting. Um, But yeah, great job, Scott, setting all that up. Uh, And also thanks to Justin for coming up with us to uh, help support us in our sour beer endeavors, although I think he's always down to do that. also here with Bevo, who's behind the glass, um, and she's Hello. she's spicy today. She's got this whole Facebook rant going. You know, it's always it's always something with Bevo. <laughs> Every time I come in, she's uh, she's got a new uh, craw about something. At least she's got the uh, the head. She's actually paying attention to the show now. Instead, of we look over at her and she's like points at her phone. Like, I'm sorry, I'm on Facebook reading this rant by this idiot that can't spell. I'm on hold with an insurance company, or yeah, whatever it is. In my defense, the insurance. <laughs> I was on the phone with the insurance company an hour before that show. I wasn't going to hang up, <laughs> and they hung up on me. So <laughs> yeah, that's the best part. Let's not talk. About no that. payoff. <laughs> Yeah, moving past that, on to more pleasant yeah. things. Our guest tonight is going to be Jim Crooks, the master blender of Firestone Walker Barrel Works. And you know what, Scott? We actually have the Firestone Walker uh, Invitational Beer Festival coming up here shortly. <laughs> I can't wait to go. Yeah, it's, it's one crazy. of my favorite festivals. And I'd say my favorite festival of, uh, of the year. Are you going to go this year? I'm in. Yeah, uh, we're taking the BNRV down. Oh, that's right. That's right. We're going to have uh, so the Rare Barrel is going, and we're pouring our beer there. Very honored to be invited. But we're also bringing an RV. So we're going to have dueling RV. We should probably park, you know, back to back or something. Yeah, well, I was going to say side by... You guys can dock. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so we can have like the the twin rooftop parties and you can just kind of jump from one to the other. We'll set up like some planks going across. Right. Or not. Well, maybe we can do... Or not. We can do, no, the the human planks. Isn't that like an internet uh, meme? Planking? uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. It's an exercise. Okay, so there you go. So you can uh, work off some of the beer by being the okay. uh, the transition point between the two RVs. I'm not sure my core no, somebody's is somebody's going to die. <laughs> well, you know that's going to happen anyway. Right. But so yeah, we'll be doing soon some uh, planking down uh, on the central coast of California in a few weeks, and uh, talk to Jim a little bit about all that event, but also uh, the program he's got going down at Barrel Works. Um, I, I just remember when I first heard that Firestone Walker was going to start a sour beer program. I was just blown away because, I mean, Firestone makes some of my favorite beers in the world. I think they're, you know, obviously one of the most decorated breweries. Uh, Matt Brindelson is maybe one of the most talented brewers in the world. And to hear that they're going to take on the challenge of starting their own sour program was really exciting. And now, uh, and they also kind of did it uh, around a similar time that the Rare Barrel was starting up. So it's been great to kind of uh, follow their progress and keep in touch with Jim about uh, what's going on down there as, as uh, he keeps in touch with what's going on at the Rare Barrel. So it's nice to kind of grow up together as breweries sometimes when, you know, you can troubleshoot kind of the same things and say, oh, hey, you, are you getting this flavor or, you know, what do you think about this yeast or this bacteria? So like we do on uh, on the show a lot, we'll tr- I'll try to take some of the conversations that I've already had with Jim and am trying to continue to have with Jim 
from just email and phone and in person to actually on the podcast, which is, you know, always what, what we're trying to achieve here is just get this information out there. So for public consumption, more than just, you know, kind of backroom uh, conversations. So Brindleton is not really involved with Barrel Works, is he? Um, I'm not sure how involved he is um, with the Barrel Works project, but we can ask Jim about that. But I really think Jim uh, is taking point on kind of the inception of a lot of these beers. Um, but we'll ask, we'll ask him about it uh, in the second segment coming up here. So, yeah, we'll have Jim on in a little bit. What else? I've taken a few steps back because I just got so excited about the last show and this one. Uh, if you guys want to participate in tonight's show, uh, you can contact us. Call us on your telephone, cellular or rotary, 888-401-BEER. You can also join us in the chat. Um, email Scott during the week, Scott at the Brewing Network, for with questions. Or I think the best way to kind of consume these shows live is uh, thebrewingnetwork.com slash TV, which we didn't actually have last week. We were on the road going up to Russian River, but more props to you, Scott, and maybe Justin for getting that show up uh, the very next day. Yeah. I think there was a, a big clamoring for that show after we announced it, and then to get it up that fast, uh, I think it was a good good idea. Well, it was mostly due to uh, your partner, Alex, uh, tall Alex, who said a uh, couple days before the show, hey, so... I'm thinking about promoting the show as being available, like, you know, say the next day. I think you guys can get it up like the next day. And I was like, well, I don't know what you mean by get it up. And he went, just post the show for download, man. I mean, how hard is it? And I went, you know what? You're right. But that'll be the only one. We'll, we'll go right back to our normal lazy ways. It's usually really hard. It was just this time was a little bit easier for, for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I just think it was his encouragement, you know, it That's really good. lit a fire into my ass. Well, people appreciate it, and I think uh, speaking yeah. of speaking of getting it up. By the way, I don't know if yeah. you saw these. These. Uh, oh no, these are. Uh, did you look? I, at these? Yeah, I did, and I put. They used to be right <laughs> here are, in front of me. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So Scott's holding a couple of CDs, CD cases, uh, which are still a thing, I guess. Um, N- well, they were in like 2004 when these things were made. This is a uh, Nate Smith, uh, yeah. pop guru, session co-host, uh, Nate Smith. Uh, band he used like, to play in. Cameras on you. Oh, it, you it is. Yeah, okay. Justin was letting me know, book. and there's these were just sitting in front of my chair when I walked in. So uh, I quickly glanced at that first one right there, and I was like, "Oh, this is yeah. interesting." Yeah. And then picked up the second one, and that's when I moved them kind of as far away from me as possible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, Justin was kind of explaining them in in an endearing way, and I was like, "Uh, yeah, that's that's really great. I, I think that's cool." But I was like. <laughs> this is not what I want to see when I'm like, you know, doing my last minute show notes before the show. Just very, I, I just feel like this is a little bit of a hostile workplace. And <laughs> I just want to know who I can lodge my HR complaint with. Yeah, well, I believe that I was determined to be HR on our last uh, road trip because I had a complaint that I needed to also um, oh. yeah, log. Yeah. So I was told to log it to myself and see what happened. <laughs> yeah, pipe down, baby. <laughs> oh, you're gonna get cut. As long as you're documenting it, you know that's that's what's important. So if you could just document <laughs> this, like well, I, if there's done. any record of what I'm saying right now at all, that that would be great. <laughs> Multiple records, <laughs> with the exception of Bevo, I didn't, I did not show it to any. I, I thought about it the next morning. Uh, uh, one of our bartenders here, Chrissy, uh, she was opening, and I was about to say, uh, "Hey, Chrissy, look at these," hola-. and then I went, "You know, nah," and I, I kept them here in the studio. Yeah, but Bevo, you get to get subjected to it. But yeah, and for those of you listening on podcast, you know, it, it was a perfect segue from get it up. Let's just say that. Let's just leave <laughs> that's it what it was. That's what yeah. sparked it. And, hey, you know, it does it does allow me to say, though, that uh, Nate uh, co-hosts on the session, which is another good show or at least a show on it's the Brewing Network. 
uh, that uh, if you like this show, you will certainly like. There's some other shows on the Brewing Network, too, yeah. such as a whole uh, bunch of Dr. Homebrew. Mm-hmm. That's a show. Yeah, there's a show. There's another show, Brew Strong. Also, well, actually, let me double check. The, yes, that is a show. That's a show. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, if you, if you like this show, there are other shows out there uh, that this network produces and you should listen to. They're all really good. And, you know, to be honest, they are all really good. That's, that's what got so many brewers I know into brewing or, you know, maybe you get the itch into brewing and then you start listening to the Brewing Network and just you fall off a cliff after that where you're just like totally immersed in the brewing industry. And it's just be it's it's a lot of fun to be a part of that. So. I, I do get those emails pretty regularly from people who uh, write in and say, uh, hey, I just want you to know I'm a couple of weeks away from opening my uh, my brewery here in Bemidji. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have you guys to thank for but it. I've been where's listening. that? Um, I think it's Minnesota, right? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> it's Minnesota. It's one of my go-to <laughs> funny-sounding names, cities, yeah. Uh, or just wherever, or, you know, or it's been open for a year, or, you know, I'm just starting the process. Uh, but it's cool to get those. Yeah. I mean, just look at Beardy, you know? Right. He went from basically just being a guy with no beard to now being Beardy, and he's like, ultimate brewmaster champion at a new brewery in planning. So yes. that's pretty cool. Yeah, you know who's a, uh, one of the backers of that brewery is uh, Kevin Euclid. I did know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That I mean, cool. Being a big baseball fan, it was uh, it was cool to hear about that. And he's a, definitely a good addition to the, the Bay Area brewing scene. And maybe he'll just teach Beardy a thing or two about facial hair grooming. <laughs> hope, we can only hope. Let's hope. But yeah, speaking of... Uh, you know, the other shows getting people into uh, into beer. So one thing we didn't get to address on the last show was um, just got back from the Craft Brewers Conference up in Portland, um, which is always a lot of fun. Uh, Portland's a great city and went to a lot of good um, informational sessions during the conference. But one thing I don't think we I think maybe I text you this, Scott, or maybe I didn't even. But maybe this is the first time you're hearing this. I was blown away at the response of people who listen to this show. Like people just came up to me, I would be at a brewery or at a bar or in the sessions and two or three times at every place I was at, people were coming up and just being like, Hey man, I love what you're doing on the sour hour. It was like, oh, these are all pro brewers too. It's just totally incredible to get that response. And I just feel really honored to be part of something that is spreading uh, you know, information, connecting brewers all across the country. There's a guy who came up to me from, um, uh, where was it? It was like somewhere in South America, maybe Chile. Um, and he was like, oh, I love this. I'm going to start brewing sour beer because of this show. So many awesome stories like that, that I can't even remember all of them. It, I was just like completely floored by that experience. It was awesome. Yeah, I love hearing that. And I've, I've, I know we have a South American contingent on the, the whole BN in general. Uh, Brazil, there's a pretty good one there. I can get an emails from people say, in home brewers saying, I haven't even brewed a sour beer yet, but I'm, I'm listening to this trying to make sure I don't screw up the first one I do. I want to kind of hit the ground running. Yeah, and that's how it should It's all be. very gratifying. Keep all the feedback coming. It's great. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it, we're just trying to connect these great guests we have with all the brewers who uh, are, are awesome enough to listen to me rant for quite a while. So, including today. So we have Jim Crooks, Master Blender from Firestone Walker. A um, couple little things I want to touch on before you take a break and get Jim in here. Um, Bebo just said we're, we're spreading like herpes, she typed to me. Yeah, we're very, we're very contagious. You can't help but get us. Yeah, they were all up on us at CBC, <laughs> for sure. Uh, a couple things I want to plug real quick. So, yeah, we, we mentioned uh, Rare Barrel is going to be at Firestone Walker uh, Invitational. That's going to be May 30th. 
We're also going to be pouring down at the brewery in Orange County. Their seventh anniversary party is this weekend. So I'm driving down there for that, to pour beer at that. Um, to me, it's only been seven years. It feels longer. They feel like a like such a juggernaut sort of staple, don't they? It's weird. Cause Maybe I'm, it's your perspective. I'm the opposite because it's like yeah. starting there when they were six months old. I'm always like, wow, seven years. Yeah. So this is like, this is a thing. Wow. It's crazy seeing it from that young to where it is now. But you're right. I mean, they're they're a juggernaut, and they're still pumping out tons of uh, experimental beer, really good stuff. And they just started their new uh, sour and wild beer brand, the Brewery Taru. So that's a new fun project of theirs. So I get to go down and try some of their new beers. Um, and then last thing I just wanted to touch on is uh, probably promoted a lot on the session and the other shows, but BNA 10. Wednesday, June 10th. Yep, out, and, on, the, uh, out on the pier. The Homebrewers Conference mm-hmm. and breaking news just from today, Rare Barrel confirmed we're going to have beer down there. I won't be down there, but uh, Alex, previously mentioned tall Alex, will be down there pouring our beer. So that'll be a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. Okay, I'm in charge of this, so I'm adding you to the spreadsheet right now. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you're breaking just, the news to the to the bookkeeper. Just make sure you good save, save and then close, so it actually you know. Oh, I'm doing it. Right. It's a good habit to get into. I'm just saying. I don't want to leave, you know, have Alex get down there and he held up at the door. I'm sorry. Who are you again? And who are you with? And no, I'm supposed to be pouring. Credentials, please. Right. Rare what? No. (laughs) Sorry, dude. Get out of here. (laughs) All right. I think that's all I have to plug. Should we take a quick break and then. You know what? Here, I want you to answer a quick question. It's actually a question I thought of, and I wrote it down on my my notepad here on my iPhone because it kind of occurred to me, and it occurred to me like late, and I was drunk, and. Uh, it seemed like such a great question. So I wrote it down, and then I looked at it the next morning. It was one of those things where, oh, I thought that was funny. Why did I think that was funny, or why did I think this was so good? Should we pretend like you're a caller calling in? Uh, yeah. So it's like, all right, we got uh, line two, uh, Scott from Concord, California. What's your problem, Scott? Who is this? Is this Jay? Yeah, what's your uh, what's your love life problem? Let's talk. This is Jay. Uh, all right, I... Uh, who, is this the call screener or is this Jay? This is Jay. Go ahead. You're live on the oh air. Oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> Have you ever listened to talk radio? <laughs> no. That's a, a lot of that. Uh, all right. So here's what, I'm, here's what I'm thinking. Would you ever think about making a beer with sour apples? All right. And so hear me out here for a second. Sure. Uh, I know that's like a it's an off flavor and every everyone in the beer world has been sort of taught to recoil at the thought of apple anything. I think at least that's the the impression I have. Mm-hmm. Uh but, I mean, apple goes great for sour. I mean, sour candy, everyone loves sour apple Jolly Ranchers, like the best Jolly Rancher. It works really well as a sort of sour flavor. Sure. So why not? I mean, you add fruit to sour beer. Why not make a sour apple beer? It would probably taste awesome. I think this is actually a great question. Because yes. And a lot of our beers at the Rare Barrel, uh, when they're in development, we get a lot of green apple flavor. Not like shitty acid aldehyde green apple like this beer is way too young and you know just is not drinkable at all yet like green beer i think apple apples taste delicious and they do have a tartness and acidity to them so why not reflect that in a sour beer i i don't see anything wrong with that and i think there's actually an overreaction to all apple flavors in beer so i think you can have acid aldehyde which to me is kind of like more of a a bruised apple, kind of like just garbage, like an apple that is half eaten and has someone tried to throw away in the restroom, but it bounced out and now it's been on the floor for like a day or two. It's like not not a good apple flavor, but I think you can get 
a lot of pleasant apple flavors and a lot of beers that you drink. Um, and I, but I think people are over conditioned to think that that's an off flavor. Off flavors are things that taste bad. So, you know, if you're tasting apple and it's pleasant, I don't consider that to be an off flavor. Now, if you're, if you have a beer that's six days old and you're doing an ale fermentation, then sure, maybe it's something you want to look out for and, you know, give a little bit more time in primary fermentation. But really all those flavors are going to be, the off flavor is going to be reabsorbed in a sour beer fermentation because of the long-term aging. So if you're getting pleasant apple flavors, I think that's that's pretty much a good thing. And on the last show, Jean from Cantillon said he made a beer with sour apples. He actually said that was, he brought it up in the context that that was his worst mistake. Right. Except the worst mistake was what he named the beer, which yes. maybe... You know, I don't and know. It was, it was in like the 1970s, wasn't it? It was maybe funnier if uh, you speak French or Flemish or something like that. But it didn't seem like that crazy of a name. But it's like, yeah, that was my well because my biggest mistake. You asked him, uh, as you ask all the guests, what your the uh, the worst mistake in sour beer making is, and he he thought for a second, and that was all he could come up with because Jean from Cantillon doesn't make mistakes. Yeah. I was I was kind of tongue in cheek asking him first. I was like, "So, yeah, you guys, what what's the biggest mistake?" John, let's start with you. Actually, <laughs> it couldn't have worked out better that he came up with that story, which is a, um, which was his marketing department screw up. Yeah, it's perfect, absolutely. But then he did tell a story about how he was drunk and agreed to make a beer with Brussels sprouts. Yes, so, some some buddy of his or something yeah. challenged him. But to, yeah. but to wrap up your question, yeah, I think you know apples go well in beer, and you know I don't think. It's all it's all in your perception. There could be good apple flavors that manifest themselves in fermentation. But yeah, if, as long as you know the difference and you can taste the difference, I think you're you're fine doing doing an apple beer. And people are starting to do that now, including Cantillon. So go for it. Uh, cool. Well, thanks for taking my call. Uh, first time caller, long time listener, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll take your answer off the air. All right, thanks. Yeah, that, that was my radio call. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So uh, that wraps up the question. Part part of the uh, part of the podcast for and, me at least. And uh, you know, speaking of questions, all questions on the show are brought to you by sourbeerblog.com. Uh, go ahead, check out sourbeerblog.com. Check out the beer review articles, the making sour beer articles. I recommend the fast souring with lactobacillus article in particular. And you said on the last show that he sent, he sent us or is sending us more beer. Yeah, they arrived. They're in the cold box. Great. Maybe next show uh, we'll taste those in the first segment or something. Yes. All right, awesome. Let's uh, take a little break. How about that? Yep. All right, we'll be right back. This is the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. For nearly 40 years, one organization has had your back. The American Homebrewers Association. Are you a member? <laughs> Why not? Join the more than 40,000 brewers who enjoy all the American Homebrewers Association has to offer. Like Zymergy Magazine, in print and online. Plus the Zymergy app. Zymergy is the leading publication for amateur brewers around the world. Supporters also get member deals at their local breweries, bars, and homebrew shops. These alone quickly pay for your membership. You'll also get great member-only resources at homebrewersassociation.org and access to AHA events like the National Homebrewers Conference and the National Homebrew Competition. The American Homebrewers Association promotes the hobby of homebrewing, protects the interests of homebrewers, and brings beer lovers together become a member today it costs less than a batch of beer and gives back so much more visit homebrewersassociation.org 
Your support of the Brewing Network means everything to us. We couldn't produce shows without you. And we love giving you something extra for that support, like... Brew Your Own Magazine. You already know it's a great brewing magazine full of recipes, equipment how-tos, discussions of beer styles, and brewing techniques. Whether you're new to brewing and just starting out or you're an old pro, you'll always learn something from the articles in Brew Your Own. Plus, there are amazing special issues like plans for building a Brutus 10 system, 250 classic clone recipes, and the Home Brewer's Answer Book. Brew Your Own Magazine and BYO.com are awesome resources for any brewer whether for yourself or as a gift when you subscribe or resubscribe from the brewing network homepage, you directly support programs like this get a great magazine and support the brewing network subscribe to brew your own right from the brewing network.com Attention, home brewers! If you like making labels for your handcrafted awesomeness and wish more people could see how great you are, then check this out. GrogTag, the makers of custom reusable labels and craftbeerandbrewing.com are hosting the first ever National Homebrew Label Awards. The top 10 labels will be featured at the 2015 National Homebrewers Conference in San Diego to more than 5,000 attendees and more than $2,500 in prizes will be awarded. If you've created a label at any time in the past year, you're eligible to enter. Grog Tag and Craft Beer and Brewing have teamed up with great sponsors like More Beer and the Brewing Network to make this competition a great one to enter. Submit your entries between March 1st and June 1st for your chance at fortune and glory at homebrewlabelawards.com That's homebrewlabelawards.com Submit your label entries today. Good luck, and we'll see you in San Diego. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanisha, and I love a bold, hoppy beer, one that spits resin in your face and makes you cry, Uncle. There are a lot of great hoppy beers out there, but at Heretic, we want to make something as bold, dank, and resiny as possible. We use hops at every chance we get, including multiple dry hop additions. The result is Heretic Evil Cousin. This light golden, 8% Imperial IPA has an easy malt character that helps take the edge off the massive bittering but it takes a back seat to the in-your-face hop character. We make sure this beer finishes dry so the hops can jump out and slam me in the taste buds. If you can't get enough hoppy goodness, Evil Cousin is your cup of tea. Cheers. Hey, c'est Jean de la Brasserie Campion. Vous écoutez The Sour Horror on Bruin Wet. <laughs> One more time. Hey, c'est Jean de la Brasserie Cantillon. Vous écoutez la Sour Horror on Bruin Network. All right, we're back. Pretty cool to have Jean from Cantillon give us uh, a liner for the show, for the Sour Hour, a little promo. In French. In French, yeah. Such a beautiful language. did not understand any of it, except for Sour Hour. Uh, I got uh, Cantillon. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're back. Um, quickly want to just give some love to one of our sponsors, uh, the Wine and Hop Shop at wineandhop.com. Um, they have over 100 varieties of hops, over 100 varieties of yeast, 75 types of malt, all fresh, although they should really get that malt variety up to 100, don't you think? 100 <laughs> hops and 100 yeast. So let's just get, get up to 100 malts. Just start malting your own if yeah, there's just, not enough to choose from. Or just make them up like... Pilsner 2. Right. Pilsner 3. I feel like I, together we can get to 100. 
Um, but also, uh, Sound advice. yeah, <laughs> marketing genius. <laughs> uh, most items that you're going to get there are going to ship within 24 hours. Um, they also have a lot of specialty stuff like kits and equipment. Um, one cool thing is you can get, uh, 10 gallon barrels, uh, that are used by a local distillery, old sugar distillery. So if you're looking to get into some, uh, some barrel aging stuff, I definitely check them out. Brewing Network listeners get $8 flat rate shipping on orders under 50 pounds. Uh, go ahead and enter BN shipping. That's BN shipping in the notes field of the shopping cart. And then your discount will be taken uh, after you check out. So go ahead and check out uh, wineandhop.com, wine and hop shop. You know, it's very smart of them to uh, limit the uh, weight of the orders for free shipping. Because yeah. I remember, I'll never forget, uh, remember pets.com? It was like one yeah. of the biggest failures of the dot-com boom and bust from mm-hmm. like 2000, you know? And I remember their whole thing, they like ran a Super Bowl ad or in like 1999. And it was like free shipping because they wanted to like, you know, build a customer base. Right. Like free shipping on, on all orders. So people just started ordering like wholesale priced kitty litter and having it shipped for free, and it was like 200-pound packages, and they were like shelling out all this money to ship all this stuff to their customers, and then they went belly up. All those uh, poor French bulldogs that got shipped <laughs> all across the country. <laughs> never forget. <laughs> yeah, those dot-coms, they never recovered, huh? Why do you know that? I know a lot, a little about a lot. For, for, I'm, for I'm parties. A, I'm an expert right. in nothing, uh, <laughs> but a, a connoisseur of everything. A mile wide and an inch deep. That's, That's how I describe Scott. That's fair. I'm That's girthy. Fair. Oh, God. <laughs> All, All right. And with, with that, uh, let's get to our guest tonight. Uh, Jim Crooks, Master Blender from Firestone Walker Barrel Works. Are you there, Jim? I think I'm here. You is. You came in oh, at kind of an awkward moment, but thanks for uh, joining us here today. Well, thank you guys for having me on. This is uh, a great experience. I ex- I'm a excited beyond belief <laughs> awesome. it's funny i'm sitting here watching you guys in your studio and i'm sitting here in this lab i'm not sure what the sound quality is like in here but this See, is what i have to work with you sound like a million bucks man you sound as good as your beers are which we have two of us uh two in front of us right now yeah Boy, we've uh good. we've thanks thanks for sending those we've poured the uh slow ambic and the the bretta rose out because uh those are a couple of the ones that i really wanted to dive into tonight um do you have kind of like a, a top level description of those uh those two beers Sure. Uh, the slow ambics kind of been around our our brewery at Barrelworks here for probably four years now. We've been working on that beer. That was one of the first fruit beers, actually the first fruit beer that we did back when Barrelworks was called Skunk Works, and it was a little teeny <laughs> alcove in a warehouse behind, way, way behind the brewery up in Paso, and we uh, we got our hands on some uh, berries that were fresh frozen from a, a local grower up in pa- in Paso area. And it just happened that um, he was working with the school I went to was Cal Poly up in Slow. He was working with the school to do jams for those guys. And so I called up one of my old professors and asked him if he had any leftover olive berries. And sure enough, I got my hands on about 600 pounds that year. This was like 2009. And I had a couple of barrels of uh, little opal that were going. And I ended up dumping about 50 pounds in each of the barrels and racking in the beer on top of the on top of the fruit and then topped it off with some Britannomyces strain and then just forgot about it for about two years and came back to it and sure enough we'd created this this interesting beer called uh, slow lambic the name kind of a takeoff on lambic although i know i just listened to uh um, Jean Jean Van Roy <laughs> tells us that we couldn't we can't brew lambics, but it was a takeoff on that, and this the name uh, 
you know, connection with Lambic and fruit. What came out was a, a beer um, kind of in the same vein of what you're drinking today, a little bit different in color. Uh, but once we had an option to work with uh, a lot more barrels and a bigger space, we really went and decided we we're going to purchase a bunch more fruit and do this on a big scale. So this last year, we got our hands on about 1,600 pounds of fruit and did a full batch of this beer um, in a little bit different way, actually. The the first batch, like I was saying, back in 2009, we, we stuffed fruit in barrels and then racked onto that and left the barrels to mature for up to two years. Um, and then the last, I would say the last two years or two and a half years of, um, of beer making up here and down here in Buellton, I've really kind of redefined how I use fruit. And so now I'm using it um, with finished beer only. And most of the, the beer we're racking um, that's finished into stainless and then fruiting finished beer in stainless for uh, upwards of maybe four to six months. And that way we can really refine how we want that flavor to taste. We're using beer that we know is finished, that we know is um, exceptionally good tasting already, and just basically doing a little shot and blessing of fruit in that beer and then racking off the fruit and packaging shortly after that. Now, I wonder how big of a problem Jean would have with this beer because, number one, it's not called a lambic. I think none. It's, it's slow lambic. It's its own thing. Yeah, it's, and, and number two, it's fantastic. Oh, John it's really had, good. I mean, obviously the name is important too, but a lot of his problem, I think, was that a lot of the stuff called lambic wasn't really that good. Well, yeah, and it's it, what I didn't hear from you, Jim, maybe you could comment a little bit more about, is this, would you consider this a spontaneously fermented beer? No, I can't say that it is either, um, and that that's kind of a misrepresentation of the, the word lambic as well. But we're not using the word lambic; it's more of just a, a takeoff on um, you know a, a Belgianish beer and something that's made up in Paso Robles. So yeah, it was it was interesting to um, create that. But it, none of the things we do here in Barrelworks have been spontaneous yet, aside from maybe a little bit of spontaneous um, action happening on the grape juice that comes in for one of our beers. Now, now what about the set it and forget it thing? You know, he, Jim left it for two years. Right. And that is something you've kind of been advising against Jay, like know your beer along the way. <laughs> Don't just go to the end of the roller coaster, ride the roller coaster. Right. So do you think they just got lucky, which seems ridiculous to say for Firestone, but you know, for lack of a better term? No, I think, um, you know, I, well, I know Jim a little bit and I know him, uh, enough to know better than to think that he's one of those brewers who isn't checking in on his beers. I think he, Jim's probably the type of guy who uh, needs to stop himself from checking in too much on the beers because he's got this micro background. And, you know, Jim, maybe you can walk us through kind of where you got your start and then how how those I, I know I have uh, talked to you a little bit about this, but the first batches at Barrel Works, I think, you know, or even before it was called Barrel Works, I think it took you a while to to pick out the ones that that really hit and were 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 great. That's true. Uh, so my background, I started in uh, 2001 working for Firestone Walker Brewing Company as the as the lab tech or as the lab manager. There was only myself and Matt Brindelson at that point working up in Paso. Um, prior to that, Matt and I both worked for Slow Brewing Company for a few years before that and basically turned a brewery that was a dog around and got it on its feet and running. Um, in 2001, Firestone was uh, lucky enough to buy that brewery. And they were at a point, I guess, down in here in Buellton where they, they were about to 
put together another brewery, a brewery uh, that was going to basically get them up and running from um, from where they were at that point was out on a vineyard. They call it Area 51. It's kind of interesting. It's it's a winery now, but it was a it was a pad, just an empty pad out in, on a, a winery property uh, that they were brewing. I think they had made it up to about 8,000 barrels on that property, and they were looking for some place to expand. I think DBA at that point was their main brand that was really hitting the market, and, uh, and they were running with that. Um, so when when I started working for Firestone, they brought in barrels immediately and said, "Hey, this is this is what we do here. Um, it's what we brew around here." Was the slogan, and or it's what we drink around here, and it comes with barrels. And both Matt and I were kind of like scratching our head, going, uh, "I don't think you can make clean beer with barrels." This is 2001, and not many people were using barrels back then. So the the tools that showed up with those barrels were this rudimentary wine uh, equipment that you know was just like dirty and most of it was anodized aluminum except for the maybe the the down tube which was stainless but uh there wasn't really much uh instruction given to us on how how to put beer in barrel and ferment in barrel so we had the the gracious luck of of having that kind of dropped in our lap and and the owner said hey we just figure it out and do what you need to do to make good beer of this and so matt and i got a really good chance and an opportunity to redefine how we wanted to do uh how we wanted to ferment beer in barrels and that's kind of where both of us got our start using um using wood and and uh fermentation in barrels and obviously firestones become you know a cornerstone of people that are really embracing using wood in fermentation and primary fermentation which is awesome we're still doing that every week it's a, a major undertaking to brew and then rack uh from you know rack high croissant fermenting double barrel right into freshly cleaned oak american oak barrels and then watch it like a hawk and make sure it's clean and sample it you know religiously and the place is you know clean it's it's clean as a I swear it's like a clean as a hospital sometimes it's we're swabbing drains and everything's stainless around the area it's it's a huge undertaking so taking you know i i took that and kind of ran with it into uh, what could be, I guess, seen as a, a side project. Uh, we called it the Skunk Works Project. But at that point, my you know my concern was obviously the the quality of Firestone was first and foremost my qual my 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 duty. My my job description was quality control manager. So I ran a lab that en- encompassed you know all micro, um, all analytical, and all sensory. Um, so that was first and foremost my duty. And then after that, it was little side projects that I could do with some of these barrels that were coming out of the union and start off with it really started off with going out to um new belgium and seeing meeting lauren salazar at, at a conference and her inviting me out to new belgium and then going to see their cellar and walking through that and tasting some of their beers that they were working on at that point 2000 i think it's 2006 and just blew my mind on what was going on there and she sent me home with some cultures that were um were work you know bread cultures and stuff that they were working on and that's where i pretty much got my start was just working up some cultures in the lab and then taking uh finished beer off of our filter in kegs and um dolling them out to this little warehouse in the back of the brewery that you know no one knew about and inoculating way back there under tarps and whatnot and so the stories of uh this like little covert project are, are true. It was really small at the beginning, maybe four barrels to begin with in 2008, nine, and then slowly just kind of building it. Matt, 
Matt knew about it. I think Matt and maybe a few of the brewers knew about it, but I don't think the owners knew about it until about 2010 or 11 when I had enough product that was it was seeping out. I think the, some of the sales team heard about it, and the beer, the beer started showing up in maybe keg format maybe about 2010 and 11, and that's when the word got out that we had a sour project, and I was uh, confronted by one of the owners, and he said, you got to stop this immediately. We're not doing sour <laughs> projects. And we're not going to contaminate this brewery. And it just seemed weird that here your quality control manager, who's supposed to keep everything clean, is now tampering with the the fire that could pretty much end his job and career if got out of hand. So that was, uh, I think that was a, a huge uh, testament to my, um, you know, my my courage to do this and my my uh, respect for how clean we wanted that beer, that brewery. So I made sure everything was done outside of um, Firestone's production facility and in the back of the brewery. So it wasn't until about 2012, I think David Walker showed up one day after he'd gone to Rodenbach. And he he was pretty much the only person that confronted me and said, hey, I really understand what you're doing. I like I like the idea of having this these beers out there. Uh, I, I don't want to do them here, but... I have a place down in Buellton that we never really got off the ground. It's, it's perfect for this. And we came down to Buellton and we recognized the option here, which was we have about, I think it's 12,000 square feet of um, production floor that had never been used. It was set up to be a cellar for, for the brewery that they were going to, they were going to build here in Buellton, which never happened. And then at that point it was being used as a wine, a bonded wine warehouse and really not being used for any purpose but um, storage. So David, uh, he came up and said, hey, let's do this. And it was at that point where I was able to start shipping things down to Buellton um, with the intention of really just starting the project again. And so at that point in 2012, we had about maybe 40 or 50 wine barrels filled with um, various forms of sour beer or tart beer. And by the end of 2012, uh, we had 600 barrels of beer that was sitting in barrels down here in Buellton. And with intention to really kind of go at it in 2013 and get this thing off the ground. So it was David's blessing. Matt definitely gave me a blessing to do this project and helped um, out as much as he could with the brewing of the Bort and Paso. So the project really was um, was defined because we, we could brew the Wart and Paso and then transport it down to Buellton, which is 90 miles south of Paso, and do all the fermentation and handling of uh, the primary and secondary of the fermentations down here in Paso, I mean in Buellton, which I think kept everyone um, really happy up in Paso when they when we defined the idea of doing all the production, all the packaging and kegging down here in Buellton. So that's, that's the, the short story, I guess, of how this got off the ground. Yeah. I think there's an interesting juxtaposition there with, you know, your background in micro and trying to keep clean beers clean. And then, but I think it's common of a lot of people in that field where you just get so interested in, uh, microbiology that you're also interested in, you know, kind of the, it's like the third rail of, uh, of a railroad, you know, the electric rail, you touch it and you die. You're kind of like, the man on wire, the person who's, you know, the tightrope walker is going in between, you know, trying to keep the quality up, but also trying to v- develop this new experimental uh, program with the sour beer. So that's a really fascinating story. And it, you're, you know, uniquely qualified to do this work, but also 
the last person anyone would expect to want to do the work. So it's it's kind of a, a funny situation there. Well, and, and what a great turn of events, too, to go from being told, like, get out of here with your funky whatever. We don't want to contaminate our brewery to the facility that they ended up building themselves down there in building. Have you been there, Jay, to Barrel Works? It's beautiful. It's ridiculous. I'm, I'm pretty jealous because, you know, I, th- I think the rare barrel looks nice. It's a similar size warehouse, lots of barrels. Um, but <laughs> the, the pockets were a little shallower building out the rare barrel. I think. Yeah. But barrel works. I is wouldn't just, say that your place is beautiful, Jay. It is. Uh, it's it's well, rustic well, compared well. barrel work. It's just barrel work is just so gleaming. I well, mean, yeah, it's just yeah. so beautiful. Let me get to my compliment. Their, their place is strikingly beautiful. They've got like chandeliers and big, nice looking food. It, it is like, I feel like you could have like a, a sour beer ball there with gentlemen in fine suits and ladies in gowns doing oh. dances if you want to smoke uh, a cigarette you got to do so out of one of those extenders like corella deville oh you know? of course that, i thought that was implied yeah <laughs> it was i was just clarifying <laughs> but yeah it's a beautiful place um so jim i'm wondering how you know you explain your your micro background do you think that has a direct influence on the flavors and aromas you guys have been deve- able, able to develop in your beers like you know, i know you pay attention a lot to different strains and how to coax different flavors out of out of them. Um, how do you think your background has influenced how the beers ended up tasting? That's a good question. And I think about how my background up in, in Paso really had dictated how I approach things here uh, in, in Barrel Works for sure. I mean, I, I'm a true diehard for knowledge and, and for attention to detail when it comes to yeast and in process. And I think one thing that Paso really ingrained in me was the, the need to, you know, really look at the minute details when it comes to yeast and pitching and viability and um, dilution rates and, and whatnot. When it comes to, you know, micro, it's, those are the things that you, those bugs and those yeasts are what you live and die by. And so I took that same, I took that same understanding down here and, started really putting together a program in 2012 of, I call it, you know, artistic brushstrokes on using a lot of these, these bacteria and these, these yeasts. I hadn't used, you know, them in, in large quantity. I've used them in maybe, you know, 60 or gallon barrels, maybe, you know, 10 or 20 barrels at most. Um, and really hadn't diversified myself into what these, bacteria and, and yeast do when used on large, large quantity, like we're talking, you know, 85 barrel turns or inoculating at, you know, anywhere between 1 million cells up to 6 million cells or even higher, or even doing primers with some of these things. So I took the liberty to set up a bunch of experiments um, on a larger scale using Brett and inoculating secondary inoculating barrels at different pitch rates um, at you know different you know finishing gravities of of the of the beer sitting in the barrels, looking at things like um, you know looking closely at IBUs of the wort coming down of the prop wort for the for the batches of bread growing those up, looking at IBUs you know looking at wort IBUs quite a bit to see what the wort IBUs were, um, not just finished beer IBUs. We did we did a lot of work on finished beer IBUs up in Paso, but you know on this project it was looking at IBUs on warts just because we wanted to grow things 
um, quickly and, and want results, want acid results from our our, our acid-producing bacteria, our lab bacteria. But yeah, so big, broad breaststrokes and then taking um, copious amounts of notes on how these beers were then evolving. And by 2013, I had pretty much felt like I defined a, a good met method of how to use Brett in a secondary um, in a secondary setting where the results were somewhat repeatable. I guess that's the, the term I try to use now. It's 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 down to you know X cells per milliliter per barrel or per per gallon of beer in a in a setting. And I know I can I can I can guarantee that there's gonna be some kind of uh, positive result that and then I would work on, um, you know, bottle conditioning was another interesting thing of taking, you know, what I learned in Paso and really back to counting cells and looking at, you know, looking at things like how fast carbonation is happening in the bottle, uh, different rates of carbonation versus different rates of dextrose in the bottle. So uh, that project, you know, was months or maybe, you know, a year in the making where I was, you know, on a lab setting inoculating bottles at, you know, certain quantities of yeast cells and then at different quantities putting in dextrose to see what would happen in finished beers and really just kind of setting myself up so I'd see the future quicker than really betting the farm on taking a batch to trade and and hoping that I'd, I'd pick the right, you know, dosage rates of yeast and dex. So, yeah, a lot of that stuff came from, from Paso, from setting up experimentation in, in lab settings and like I know you preach, you know, start small, Jay, and that's kind of what we like to do too. In 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 Paso, is we don't want to risk the, the farm on a on a hunch. Well, yeah, I mean, you say that that I preach that, but I remember when we were lucky enough. I think the rare barrel, as we were maybe just starting to brew our first beers, nothing was released yet, and we got to come down uh, to Barrel Works, and Jim showed us around, and I was just struck at how much. I liked his approach, and he, I even saw some of the flavors of our, and I don't mean to make the comparison between the two breweries, but just from from our barrels to his barrels that we got to taste, I saw very similar uh, flavors, and then when we talked about the fermentation, some of them were very similar, and it was just nice to see, okay, hey, this guy who knows what he's talking about, his beers kind of taste like mine. So that, that meant a lot to me when we were still you know, pre-bottling or pre-release or anything like that. So I've always really liked uh, the overall Barrel Works approach and just the quality of the beer has been dynamite so far. Um, but I want to get into maybe a little more nitty-gritty and technical stuff. Uh, but let's take that in the next segment. But before we get to a break, let's maybe take a listener question while we have Jim here. Yeah, here's one for you, Jim, from Mark, writing in from Medford Lakes, New Jersey. And he said, uh, hey, at Barrelworks, do you try to stick to a production schedule for your beers uh, or like a when it's ready, it's ready kind of approach? And uh, if you do try to stick to a schedule, can it be tricky to manage uh, unpredictable beers? That is that is the... Um you know, end all be all question for most beer producers. And, you know, this, this project, this project started off definitely as, you know, the beer told me when things were ready. And I'm a big believer of, you know, letting the barrels tell you when things are ready for sure. Uh, I think if you have the option to do that and you have the time to spend um, waiting, that is the best advice. I think that any person in, in, 
sour beer making can have is that the beer will tell you when it's ready. But <laughs> that being said, we have a production schedule and it started, you know, it started off 2013 with, Hey, I'm going to release maybe six beers that have to get out. Obviously, you know, this, the lights down here aren't paid for by the state or anything. It's paid for by, you know, production. And that's how Firestone's managed. It's managed from a production standpoint. And so, um, I had to put together a schedule of what I felt could be released. And like I said, I, I set myself up with some pretty big broad brushstrokes that I felt pretty confident about that I would get results, um, knowing from, knowing from my testing and my, my lab, you know, background with, with that, I felt I could move forward and put a schedule together in 2013. Um, what ended up happening was the, by 2014, uh, a lot of those beers that I set myself up were, were really finished. So I was looking at already, you know, putting a schedule together for seven beers. What turned out was I, I we packaged 10 beers in 2014, um, almost, you know, almost twice as much as what I figured we were going to be making. And with the confidence of that behind me, we put a schedule that was pretty much as aggressive together for 2015 and 2016 already. Uh, and that, that comes from having the ability to have large batches where we can do, um, you know, multiple experimentation to where we can, we know we can push things that will in a year or two be very much ready to go. But also comes from the ability that we have now with our inventory of roughly about 2,000 barrels of souring beer, we have the ability to, to blend. And that's what really helps set a production schedule for us is knowing that we have options. Uh, we have beer that's finished. We have beer that's in process. Um, I mean, I already at this point in 2000, you know, 2014, looking ahead at the schedule we had, the beer already finished that we were looking at packaging in 2015. So it, I was, I guess I would, I would say I was confident to put the schedule together for 2015 that looked, you know, very inviting to um, upper management, you know, f- for David and Matt to see that already. They were like, Hey, you're doing something right. So let's just continue down that road of, of uh, using a production schedule. And that really helps for us because, there's just there's a lot more going on than just making beer down here. It's it's a it's a whole facility that you know showcases the barrels. We have events and we want to make you know we want to make people have you know a great time and not make them have a time. We want to invite them into the the barrel works here and and really showcase what this is all about. And so we've kind of parlayed these big releases into these these events that we invite three hundred to five hundred people and release a, a big chunk of our production every year. And so we've, we've done that. I think we did that five times last year and planning to do that about the same this year where we make a, a party about it. And so it takes, you know, months of coordination to do those events. And I think it really helps for us to have this production schedule. And, um, but that doesn't completely answer your question. I think another side of that is that, yes, I do run into walls at some points. Um, beers sometimes aren't, aren't, uh, aging at, rates that I'd like. I, again, I'm, I'm a big fan of just letting things tell you when they're done. So I'm not trying to force anything. Um, I am trying to use the technical understanding I have with, you know, yeast and temperature and, um, you know, I guess it would be recipe to promote things. But again, like this year, um, 
I was set to release a, a lightly breaded Saison that's about, you know, a year old in barrel. When I went to those barrels, I wasn't tasting a lightly breaded Saison. I was tasting more of a, a sour tart Saison, and it's not what I wanted to release. So I looked at another direction and ended up pulling out a couple two-year-old, not a couple, about 52-year-old um, barrels that had gone further than you know expected as far as tartness. And what the beer was telling me was that you're not releasing little opal this year. You're going to release sour opal this year, which is our you know up to 48 month old aged you know we call it American goose, but that's what basically happened this year, which was a surprise to everybody as well as myself. So that and then we went back to the drawing board and realized that oh we got to slow things down here if we're going to make just saison a lightly breaded saison things have to slow down a little bit. So you learn from those kind of things and some those that's like a you know kind of a happy fortuitous um, finding. But again, that was a deviation from our production schedule. So those do happen. And I think that would happen in, in best case scenario, you're able to, you know, follow a schedule, but in worst case, if you can put something else out and like we did to fill that hole and that gap, then you, it, it looks good for everybody. I would like to uh, personally thank you for making that mistake, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Some people call it a mistake. Other people call it a blessing, I think. <laughs> yeah, we have a bottle of, uh, I think, both sour opal and little opal. Nice. Try. So we'll have to crack those open. And ju- um, just the regular opal is a great beer, too. Oh, yeah. The whole line. I, I sent you a, a bottle of little opal and then a bottle of sour opal so you could taste those side by side and see the difference of those two. But same base beer and pretty much same treatment, just age. Awesome. Well, maybe we should uh, crack that open in the next segment. Um Yeah, let's do it. Let's uh, take a short break, and we'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Beer tasting games that train your palate, a brewery locator, and the brand new interactive beer style guide. These are just a few of the awesome things you'll find on craftbeer.com. The style guide is a beautiful example of technology in beer. Browse beer style families or turn on the automatic beer style finder and explore beer through color, bitterness, ABV, aroma, and flavor. It's really the coolest way to explore every beer style besides having them all in front of you. Go to craft craftbeer.com and click on beer styles to start the guide plus enjoy the rest of craftbeer.com the brewers banter blogs beer education how to host a beer tasting and the invaluable draft quality manual tons of great content that makes your beer better visit the new craftbeer.com right now and explore the website that brings you all the passion camaraderie and creativity of the craft beer community craftbeer.com celebrating the best of american beer A few things happened 30 years ago. Arfanet migrated to TCPIP, and the Internet was born. Revenge of the Jedi was renamed Return of the Jedi and opened in theaters. Mila Kunis and Emily Blunt were born, beginning a rad fantasy in my mind. But all of that pales next to the fact that HopTech opened its doors and began blowing homebrewers right out of their mash tuns. HopTech doesn't fuck around. Real people shipping awesome shit straight to you. Their new website is fast and easy to navigate. Or just call 800-379-4677 and let badass bitch Jade and the gadget guy Roberto blow their warm load of customer service all over you. So visit the site or visit the store in Dublin, California and support those that support you. Get your brewing on at HopTech.com. 
BN Army, I'm here to talk seriously for a second. You all are partially responsible for something explosive, and it's time you answer for it. Moonlight Meadery is exploding. Yeah, exploding across the country. Wait, they just landed in Australia with insane quality meads. With nearly 70 different varieties of mead on the market, Moonlight Meadery has blown up the mead category and completely reinvented it. Seriously? What? Seriously? What? You're paying money for that watered-down mead when you could have a Moonlight Mead? Moonlight Meads explode with quality and flavor. They're a party in a bottle. Did someone say party? If you want mead and want the best, you want meads from Moonlight Meadery and will accept nothing less. And now get 15% off by going to moonlightmeadery.com forward slash BNARMY and use coupon code BNARMY at checkout. Hey, sign me up for that party. Hanging out with Jim Crooks, Master Blender of Firestone Walker Barrelworks, enjoying a lot of the Barrelworks beer he sent up. We've had Slow Ambic, Bread Rosé, and then we just cracked open Lil Opal and Sour Opal. I should so. have taken a picture of my staff's faces out there, Jim, when I handed them the leftover uh, bottles of the uh, two we just drank. They were beside themselves. <laughs> Which I'm sure I I, there was something there for them. <laughs> I think they're excited about how much we actually had left them. It's like you know we were pretty yeah, exactly. we we, t- we took our taste, but you know with them in mind they are. So just for people maybe who haven't uh, had any of your beers before, you guys uh, package them all up in 375 milliliter bottles with a uh, uh, cork and cage. Um, how maybe we'll just tackle this now. How widely uh, do these beers get out? Is it like a barrel works only thing or, you know, people all over California or over the country? Where can people get these beers? Up until, uh, I guess, this uh, August, they were only, they will only be available here in Buellton and in Paso, Robles, and then also in Venice when we open Venice. So it is a, a brewery only release most of the time. Um, our keg product, that's for the bottles, excuse me, the keg product does make it out to a more uh, broad range of bars in California and also nationally. Uh, we've we've made it kind of unique and in very in small releases because of really wanting to bring the people into to the nest here. I guess Barrelworks is such a beautiful place, and we, we really feel like it's it's worth it's worth a drive to come here uh, and see what we have going on here. I'm not sure if it's you know sensible as far as a, as a monetary factor, but it's definitely bringing uh, people here to see this place, and it's kind of a it's a pilgrimage of sorts when they come and get their bottles here. Uh, Agrestic this year in 2015 will be released nationally, so that's uh, one of the largest runs we'll be have ever done. It's a 3,000 case run that will make it to market. Um, I'm not sure exactly what markets or um, what stores, but what I've been told, it's going to make a, it's going to make its way out there, and so um, I'm anticipating that whole process coming um, around here in the next few months, and uh, really want to prepare my prepare ourselves for uh, this release. It's going to be a pretty big one for us, uh, given that's three thousand cases. It's and on the equipment that we have here, it's going to take us uh, over a week to di- get that in bottle. So wow. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, it's it's been small, and uh, we're we're normally about. 
uh, or at least it's about 500 cases, five to 600 cases per beer. And that usually gets released um, to the public in one one or two days. And then what's left over, we filter through um, either location. So it's pretty small. All right. I'm going to ask a, a selfish question because it's just, just for the rare barrel, but hopefully it applies to some other people out there. We're, we're getting into the point where we are also packaging some larger runs. I'm wondering how you guys handle uh, splitting up those bottlings. Are you doing dosing with uh, fresh yeast and dextrose? Are you doing that, you know, once every day? Are you doing it all at once and keeping it in a cap tank? How are you handling splitting a large bottling run uh, over multiple days? I, I'm not sure how other people might apply this thought, but my thought on this is I want consistency. And, and first and foremost, it's like knowing exactly what what's being delivered to the bottle for me is, is kind of like what seals a deal and makes me able to tick. Um, otherwise I'd just be questioning what's going on. So I am, I'm definitely of the nature of racking over from the main tank into a mixing tank that morning. Um, I known quantity through a, a mag flow meter, um, an exact quantity that I know. And then I'm, I'm, uh, calculating, my dosage of yeast and dex off of that that known quantity in my mixing tank and then i'm i'm uh mixing taking cell counts off that mixing tank uh, taking a, a gravity reading off that to make sure everything's uh, up to par what we're normally seeing and then we will deliver to our our filler which is a, a gravity filler um it's it's nothing special and it doesn't have a mixer in it but we'll we're running through the filling bowl so quickly that um, there's no need to mix in the filling bowl. And then I'm taking initially taking cell counts in the bottles to, to make sure that we're still consistent in the bottle. And then if we take any break, um, other than about a 10 minute break, we will keep gas on the headspace of our filling bowl, but then go back and mix that in and then re, um, recount and make sure that we're consistent throughout the whole run. So yeah, it's, it's, it's about, you know, it's for us, it's about every day, uh, basically doing a new run and looking at, you know, what, what's going to happen in that run. But from a consistency sake, I just feel more comfortable with treating it like it's its own run every day. Awesome. I think that's a really good approach, especially, you know, you have to prize prize consistency above a, a lot of other stuff when you're talking about sour beer, just because there is so much variability. Um, what are you doing at the rare barrel? Well, we're just starting to do this. And I, I think we take the same approach that Jim does. Um, we have, I think, a little bit faster bottling line because we're using um, crown caps. So I think that allows us to go a little bit faster, um, a more automated machine. Um, so while, you know, a, maybe a run that's taking him a week will maybe take us two or three days, but we are splitting them up over multiple days. We're just having trouble, uh, you know, we're, we're have to, having to ha- have to use a like a fermenter to store finished beer while we're waiting for the packaging tank to come up. So it's just using what we have now while, uh, while we still can't afford to get more tanks, but hopefully eventually we can get more tanks that are just, uh, devoted to package our beer exactly how, how we want to. And there, there are no changes that occur in the fermenter in the, in, I guess it's just too, too short of a period of time. It's just a few days. Uh, no, actually I think there are changes that occur because, um, I mean, it is, a, usually we try to package the next day or the day after. Um, but we just did a large run that 
Um, you know, half the batch was in our bright beer tank and we packaged that off. It was a fruited beer. And then the second part of the run, uh, stayed in the fermenter for an extra 48 hours. So conical fermenter and that beer ran off a lot clearer. Um, not, not significantly, but for us, you know, we, we try to notice the minutia and I thought that was great. So the next, the two subsequent fruit beers that we packaged, we did the same thing. We found time put them in the conical. to put it in the conical um, to increase our clarity of the beer. Um, is it now? If the longer you left in the conical, the clearer it would get. Is that fair to say? Yeah, but I mean, we don't filter our beer at all. So we, there's kind of a. I think there's a point of just, hey, this is how clear the beer is going to be. We also don't crash the beer, um, so we don't cool down the beer to um, get any solids out of suspension. Um, so. For us, that's 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 just our technique. I think a lot of other breweries would cool down. I know. I think um, r- I'm not sure if Russian River does it, but I think I know the Lost Abbey does it. They will cool the beer down to about 50 degrees, I believe, um, before packaging to get some of the any any solids like any yeast or fruit that's up in suspension, anything that's going to affect the clarity of a sour beer, um, kind of down and dropped out. But I, I don't want any of that to negatively affect uh, bottle refermentation. So I like to keep it at a higher temperature. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's so many ways to go about it. Um, it's just great to hear uh, hear a lot of different brewers' perspective on on bottle conditioning. Um, Jim, do you care about clarity? We do. Uh, I I would say it's not it's not like number one on our list. Flavor is obviously the main concern for us, and flavor of the beer and consistency of that. But we have um, we have a process right now that we kind of follow that we're starts with racking out of barrels into a storage tank or a bright tank, and so we get all the beer that we're gonna we're gonna bottle for the run all together in in one tank, and so it's homogenized, and then we'll we'll crash cool that uh, with you know minimal amounts of head pressure on the tank enough to just keep. Um, positive pressure on the tank because we don't want any CO2 pickup in the bright tank, but we'll crash it down to you know 35 degrees and try to precipitate out all the the yeast that came over with the push from the barrels. Um, and normally we'll we'll see you know cell counts from you know anywhere from 10 10 million cells per milliliter down to like you know less than 100,000 cells per milliliter by the time it's crash cooled which which I kind of like I'm trying to get that stuff kind of out of there as much as possible just so I'm not competing with it when we're bottle conditioning um although there's you know there's thoughts on the subject of that you know Brett there's going to be Brett carried over obviously we've we've done PCR on a lot of our product and seen that there is carryover from the bright tank no matter how cold you get at this these these bugs and these bacteria and yeast are still minimally in solution, even at 100 million salts per milliliter. It might seem like a, a minimal amount, but it's enough to do a lot in a bottle, especially if you're adding sugar. But the idea is that we crash that out, try to burp that out the bottom, and that also precipitates out some proteins and whatever yeast and, uh, sorry, fruit flakes that came over if there's a fruited beer. And, and yeah, I'm looking for clarity. If, if I have issues with, like, pectin haze, I'm going to try to address that. You know, we'll, we'll, we might find it um, with salicylic acid if needed, but a lot of times I won't have to touch the beer. Just the cold stabilization really helps. And then, uh, you know, we're we're looking at just trying to put 
semi-clear beer in the bottle, if possible, and in keg. And so we're trying to we're using racking arms and trying to find the yeast bed if we can. And this is all techniques that you know I learned up in Paso, so it just kind of carried over with me when I came down the barrel works. Awesome. Just what, I want to move on shortly here to uh, some of the strains, specific strains of Brett, Lacto, and PDO you've been using. But just to wrap up uh, bottle conditioning, uh, what, what yeast are you guys using for your bottle conditioning? We, we mainly use DB10 for our conditioning. I, I feel that's like from what I trials I did, I used uh, the EC1118. I used uh, another one. It was a uh, Bialyanus and DB10. It just seemed like DB10 was the most consistent and had the less, the, the least amount of uh, secondary aroma and, and flavor carryover from its fermentation. Uh, but it's not by mean all means my you know our end all be all of the bottle conditioning yeast. It just seems like it's a consistent yeast for us, and we've learned we're learning about it still. I mean, I'm still learning about this whole process in bottle. But we, um, our process of bottle conditioning, we're putting beer in bottles and then um, at 65 degrees Celsius, I mean, sorry, Fahrenheit, we'll, we'll warm up the, the beer from its, uh, once it's crash cooled and it seems like it's clarified and dumped, we'll, we'll probably bring that bright tank back up to about 65 degrees um, by running uh, warm water through our, jack, our glycol jackets. Over the course of about you know maybe twelve to twenty four hours, that beer warmed back up to about sixty five, which is what ambient temperature is in our in our cellar. And then we'll bottle at sixty five, and then we'll we'll take those bottles once they're packaged and in in cases and warm condition them at around seventy degrees for Fahrenheit for however long it takes. And that means I mean we'll get CO two development within I'd say two weeks or even less. But what also is happening is that there is a um, there is a yeast, um, I guess, evolution of diacetyl that comes out into the beer, or bicyclic diketone, which we shoot on up at Paso in our lab. We have a GC that shoots bicyclic diketone, and that's a precursor to diacetyl. But we look at that pretty strictly. So we'll we'll shoot the beer before bottle conditioning to see what the baseline VDK is, and then we'll bottle condition, and then we watch that as and that becomes the the indicator for when the conditioning is done. Once the, um, we'll see a spike in VDK, um, usually from like, say, we'll start at like 50 at a baseline, 50 part per billion, and it'll spike up to maybe, you know, two, 300, sometimes even higher. And then it's in the bottle, but then there's reabsorption that's happening. And so once we see the baseline, the VDK reabsorb back down to what the baseline is or close to baseline, we'll start testing the beer um, in sensory tasting it and then once it's passing sensory that's when basically we'll say okay let's take it out of the conditioning room it's ready to go back into the 65 degree ambient warehouse temperature and i can feel pretty pretty safe that what's in the bottle is representative of what i wanted so that's that's what we're using that's it's pretty cool technique we have and it's worked pretty good db10 i'd say the turnaround time for that um reabsorption is about anywhere between three to four weeks um on the outside maybe eight weeks but um only with the fruit beers have we seen anything that's slower than about four weeks reabsorption so that that's you know we'll keep those beers in our warm storage or sorry our conditioning room for about at least about six to eight six to eight weeks minimally 
And I've, I've heard that you say the same thing, Jay. That, that's that time is time well spent when that beer's just sitting and kind of, you know, it's going through some conditioning. It's also there's some bread activity working. I mean, you just bottled, so there's a lot of oxygen that that spiked up in your bottling. I'm not sure. At least on ours, I can say that I know there's oxygen present during the bottling, and that. You know, you're starting all their kind of fermentations. They're starting, you know, some lacto. You could be starting some PDO activity, but you're definitely starting some bread activity. So there's a little secondary fermentation, a couple different secondary fermentations happening in that bottle that add to the complexity of that beer. Definitely, I think that's what's happening. So in a nutshell, that's what we're doing. <laughs> awesome. That's a thorough rundown. Um, we have a phone call, Scott? Yeah, we do. Before we get to it, uh, I do have a question for you, Jay, because we have mm-hmm. the uh, the both opals in front of us, the lil and the sour, yeah. and both of them are, are very Brett forward. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the dominating characteristic of both of the beers to my palate, and it's a pretty marked departure from rare barrel beer, Sure. again, for my palate, and I'm wondering if you agree, one, and if you do, do you intend to produce beers like this that are really Brett dominated? Uh, yeah, I'd agree. Um, you definitely get, uh, a lot more aromatics. We don't get a lot of aromatics from our, uh, yeast and bacteria in our beers. A lot of the aromatics in our beer is from secondary ingredients. Um, but something that we started to experiment with, well, we actually, so we went, um, nine or 10 months without doing a single Saccharomyces fermentation. All of our fermentations, the dominant yeast was Britannomyces, um, which is very unusual. Um, and I think introducing Saccharomyces and getting some of those esters and phenolics in a primary fermentation and then to have Brett interact with those in a secondary environment uh, will produce um, some stronger Brett aromatics. But I feel like if there's two things that, people search for in sour beer it's brett aromatics and acidity and i think you know there are a few ways to do both of those things well or do it in high volume um but i think what we're trying to do is take a slow approach to um trying to drive those flavors up at this point um but i don't know jim why don't you uh comment a little bit on how how you got those uh aromatics in these beers um i guess I mean, it comes back to having diversity in your cellar, uh, having options to pick barrels that have um, more prevalent aroma, bread comp aromas, and, and then blending that with other barrels that have um, different characteristics. Say, like some might have some bright, fruity characteristics, some might have a, an acidic characteristic that's more dominant. So it's looking at the you know the total you know, all the characteristics as a, as a, as a whole and trying to pick out, uh, like, you know, like a, like a chef, like pick out which are going to fit together well, and then, you know, follow a theme. So for, for little Opal, uh, I had some beer that was two years old that had really nice bread character. Um, others that were a little bit just more flat in, in character, more basic, um, not as developed, and then others that were a little bit tart and were probably less bread forward, but more tart and citrusy forward. So uh, I approach I approach the blending kind of um, as like a painter, where I I have different colors and I'll I'll dose in you know the bright tank a couple different you know colors and taste it and see what what's going on and and then you know depending on um, obviously depending on the volume that you need to produce, that sometimes will dictate 
where your blend's going to go. Uh, you might have more of one characteristic barrel than, than the other two or three that will dictate how you blend. But for most part, it's, it's, it becomes, uh, you know, uh, I guess a question of what your palate's wanting to taste and what your, what your, your tongue wants and what you're anticipating this, the beer to taste like. So for, for sake of sour opal, um, you know, that beer was, you know, a surprise, but there was this, there's a couple characteristics that we really try to hone in on when we're anticipating how things are going to take taste. You know, when you're, when you're working with these beers, you're, you're thinking two, two, three years down the line. Sometimes you're thinking, how's this going to work? You know, like, so you're anticipating, hopefully making these aromas and in, in these flavor compounds happen in these barrels. And so you're setting yourself up to do that, but you're not going to know really how it's going to, how it's going to be evolving until, you know, two years down the line, you're talking, you know, 600 days later. So, um, like I said, the only thing you can really control in this, this matter is like, you know, the base beer IBUs, um, how clean your barrels are, how clean your environment is, the temperature that your storaging, your storage is and your inoculum. And, and that really dictates, you know, how these things are going to turn out. So relying on what you're putting, relying on your inoculum, it really comes down to knowing your inoculum and knowing how these flavors are going to uh, evolve is what, you know, what we're all betting on. I think any sour beer maker would say the same thing. It's just you have to trust your, your, your colors and your paints. Hey, Dustin? Yeah. Hey, you're in Rancho Cucamonga. I am. What's going on? Hey, um, I had a question about I'm going to do a, a kettle souring uh, just to get some kind of clean tartness uh, in a saison that I'm going to be making. And I was just curious if there is a pH threshold that I need to be cognizant of before it has any adverse effects on, say, the Saccharomyces. Uh, good question. Jim, have you done any kettle souring? Um, no, I would I would probably be fired if I even proposed <laughs> to do kettle souring. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, I, yeah, I actually don't have a lot of experience with it, but um, we've had some good shows on it, uh, especially the, the Troy Casey show. Chris Johnson from Green Bench was here for our uh, first or second segment talking about it, and I love his technique. Also, one thing I forgot to mention about uh, being at CBC, uh, there was a talk on kettle souring, and that was probably the best talk I went to when I was there. Um, three local Portland brewers all had different techniques. Um, and none of them really mentioned a pH threshold. I think um, Saccharomyces, it, it's very strain dependent, but Saccharomyces are quite resilient to pH if it's for one fermentation. Um, you know, this, you may already be planning this, but, you know, I would not repitch that Saccharomyces going forward. Um, right, right. And, uh, but, but I think it's a great way to introduce some acidity, um, into your program and to get it without, um, you know, having, having stuff grow kind of for a long time in a, in a secondary environment. Hey, uh, Dustin, are you the guy who sent me this, uh, 15 breweries to watch article? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that was me. Dustin emailed a couple days ago and he, uh, was reading this uh, article, 15 breweries to watch this year in 2015. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he said, Hey, I noticed a through line, uh, that half of them have been guests on the, the sour hour, including, and including the host himself, your, your, uh, rare barrel made it on there. Wow. Yeah. Who wrote, did Jay Goodwin write the article? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Congrats. Big time. Nice. Did that, did that answer your question, Dustin, or do you have anything else? Uh, yeah, I, just another quick one. So yeah. I was looking at, you know, I'm just looking for, like, a clean tartness to it, and I decided to go with a commercial pitch from White Labs, the uh, Del Brookie Eye. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on the vial, it has like a 76, 78 kind of temperature range. But everything I read about cultivating, I guess, from wild um, recommends, you know, uh, around a 120. Is there a difference between cultivating from, you know, say the, uh, the grain husks versus a commercial pitch? Uh, I think there's a difference. I'm not sure what the temperature difference would be because I think when you cultivate from the grain husk, you don't have that identifiability of what the strain is going to be. The only strain I've ever heard of that has adverse effects at higher temperature is one from, shoot, I'm going to forget the name, but it's from a a small yeast lab in, I think, Chicago area called Omega Yeast Labs. Their lacto, they have one strain of lacto that works best at like 70 or 80 degrees, but I think the rest of them, uh, anything below 120 will be just fine. Um, and you'll get, you'll get a nice amount of acidity coming out of there. Thanks for the call, Dustin. That's a, actually a perfect transition into what something I want to ask Jim about is, uh, you know, you've gotten, you've got all on all your bottles, you list out all the microorganisms, Jim, and, uh, so you've got the different breads. Um, and so what, you know, uh, one of the beers you sent us has PDO, I believe, what what has been your experience though with the the different lactos? I know I've seen Brevis, I've seen Delbrookii, and I've seen something called Lindari, which I don't think I have any experience with. Can you kind of compare and contrast some of the bacteria that you use and what your experience has been with them? Yeah, definitely. I, I guess real quickly, I would just mention that I, the caller I, we have had a, a little bit of experience with doing some sour mash techniques here, and then also souring um, pre fermented wort. And so, with the pre-fermented wort, we've we've used the uh, Lactobacillus uh, buccaneri from Y yeast. It's a fifty-three thirty-five, and that worked really well um, in a really short amount of time to sour up. I guess about seventeen. We had about seventeen barrels of wort that um, that we used that on, and we we grew that pitch up in the lab to a point where um, I guess I was looking at maybe having about five gallons of it and the pH of that was about three, four and I was adding wort to it and seeing about, I was seeing maybe a two tenths or three tenths of a degree drop in Play-Doh in about two and a half to three days. And that was my indication that it was working. And I was also seeing the, the pH drop consistently from, you know, say five, five, five to you know ph5 or four or five down to like three four three three eight to three four within i'd say a week and that was my indication that okay things are evolving they're working so every time i bumped that it would take about a week week and week and then i had about five or i think maybe about eight gallons of it that i added to um this batch were you doing that at a high temperature gym yeah, we were we were doing that at high temperature. So we we had a heat wrap on our tank, and I think I had the temperature set at around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 to 110, and that's been that's been my working temperature with lacto um, in propagation format is right about that temperature. It seems to be for all of them. They seem the ones that I've used seem to like that temperature, and and same thing for the ma- the mash uh, sour mash that we did. Um, we. We brought in, um, I don't know, maybe 600 pounds of, of uh, grains, did a sour mash, uh, just a simple 154-degree mash, and then uh, cast that whole mash over into a, a, a tank where we could hold the temperature about 110 degrees. And we dropped in, um, for this one, we dropped in just raw grain in uh, muslin bags and saw everything take off within 24 hours. 
saw the pH start plummeting. What we were doing at that point, too, was um, we were sparging CO2 through the bottom of the tank um, almost on a, a you know regular basis every four or five hours just to make sure that there's a really nice blanket of CO2 covering the, the headspace on that tank. Because um, I heard just horror stories about butyric acid forming in, in these mashes. And so uh, keeping everything anaerobic was, was a, a big deal for us. And, and it, it ended up working. I think we, we were able to hold that temperature for three days. We watched the pH of that mash drop from, you know, five-something to three, three-and-a-half, and, a half and um, had a really nice kind of uh, lactic milk kind of smell to it before we then racked it off and then um, sent that right into barrels and, and uh, did a primary with, uh, I think, a mixed culture of pretendomyces and PDO and, and whatnot. But it ended up turning out to be a really nice nice product that we blended then with um, wine grapes, a uh, wine grape juice, uh, Grenache Gris. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to tasting that this next week, but um, such goes those stories. Uh, as far as lacto though, yeah, 5335 uh, is, is one of the strains that we seem to really like. It seems to be really consistent and it's a really nice soft lactic flavor. Um, it works really well as a secondary for us. We have it uh, mixed in with our, some of our Bretts, so it works in accordance with Brett. It seems to be working fine. And then I can't speak much more about, um, you know, Brevis is another one which has been very consistent for us. Um, we use it in the same sense where it, it can either be used as it's by itself. A lot of these bacteria work really well by themselves when they're not competing against a ton of other Brett or Sacro. Um, but in secondary cultures, um, you know, it just takes time. I mean, obviously the Brett's going to take off first. And then these lactics are kind of secondary behind the scenes cultures that are, are working away and producing their acids. And sometimes it takes them longer depending on what ratio you have them mixed in with your strains. Um, I, I have to plug, um, I have to plug, uh, East coast yeast and Al Buck because we do have some of his cultures in here that are just monsters and we've been using them for, for years now. Al's uh, really, really, um, friendly guy and sent us some of his cultures years ago to fool around with um, back when I was working in Paso and we did some experimentation or I did behind the scenes some experimentation with this stuff and found out which ones were really really nice and we've um, we've used them ever since we've we've been using those in in uh, in a lot of our secondaries um, we have about three different ones that we we like we call one of them Brett Rodeo which is the PDO we, we call it the PDO monster as well it's just the the ropey uh, extracellular dextrin um, producer. And it's, so it's, I'm sure it's uh, Daminosis is what's in there, but we've done primary with that. So it's a, it's a probably a Brett, a Brett positive strain that then is mixed in with PDO and it, it just ferments like a monster and then it turns things completely ropey within I'd say five days. And so when we first, when I first got the courage enough to use it in primary, we aerated for the Brett, and then as within the three days, the, the whole tank had dropped in pH to like three, five, and was a complete ropey, slimy mess. And uh, I was questioning what I got myself into because I'm sitting in the mirror with 85 barrels of slime, slime beer at that point. Um, but the flavor that in the aroma of the beer was amazing. And, um, you know, when, if you could just get past drinking, you know, slime, you're, you're, you're like, wow, this is really cool. This is, this is something I've never tasted before. Definitely that those flavors can only come from the, the PDO. And 
from the from the roundtable or some, some discussion, I'd heard that you can use Brett to break down this uh, extracellular um, saccharo or extracellular saccharide. So we sent the whole thing into one of our brand new uh, horizontal uh, sixty eight barrel horizontal beautiful oak tank and then followed it with about four to six million cell per milliliter of of brett uh lambicus or, or brooks whatever you want to call it i know it's 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 a con it's a there's a definite you know contest on what call that that strain but we we call it brett rambo for for sake of just calling it something different um, because it just kicks some serious butt and it went into that tank and within uh, maybe four weeks that beer had turned back around from slime back into normal beer and it had just an amazing um flavor and aroma but the acidity because the pedio because of the pedio portion of the the culture it was just a acid like amazing clean acid bomb and the ph of that beer landed somewhere below like three it was like two nine five um, and this amazing viscosity. I mean, it had body, and it was super acidic. It had a beautiful aroma from the from this beautiful fooder that we'd used, and everything about it was just like this is an amazing blender. Now, I mean, we have all of a sudden we we created this the ultimate blender, which we now we call it cowbell because it's just like you know we need more cowbell, and so we can use it to spike into anything um, that needs a little bit of that that brightness. Um, it's super clean, and, and it was just a, an amazing fine for us to have that happen and so now we have this strain we, brett rodeo we, we hold on to it and thank you al for that um that excursion into the scary you know ropiness of of pedio but we there's something about pedio that I, i've heard people say and i'm a believer that it's a flavor that really defines a lot of belgian beers um and it, it's also a Believe it or not, I think there's a there's a viscosity that's left behind after you you um, break down the 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 sliminess, the ropiness that you can't get from lactobacillus. Um, it's it leaves behind um, a mouthfeel that is very very unique to itself um, that really only comes from that beer going ropey and then coming back into um, into less viscous beer. So um, we're still it, learning about that. Yeah, isn't that what Vinny was saying? Yeah, definitely. That's that's a great story about how you're using that PDO, and I'm I'm just waiting for the next uh, Barrel Works beers to be Rodeo, Cowbell, <laughs> and I gotta Rambo. Have more cowbell. <laughs> uh, now I want you to work on uh, Al from East Coast East, Jay, because yeah. I attempted to book him. I think for the session a couple of years ago, and he, he kind of wrote me back like, uh, "Yeah, thanks, but no thanks." Mm. Like it's not it's not really a full time gig for me. I can't really supply too many people, so nah. Yeah, the, I mean the guys who are running the small yeast labs, uh, like Nick from the East Bay, who we had on the show. You know, they're they're all doing double duty, so they have like their full time jobs as microbiologists, and then they're like running this whole company on the side. So, but yeah, that's definitely in in the works. And uh, but it's great to have a microbiologist on the show with us tonight, and Jim. And uh, Jim, I just gotta say, first off, thank you for joining us on the show. I think we're just about out of time. But I can already tell, based on the list of questions I have in front of me and how many we got to, that we're definitely going to have you back for another show. We got to. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm long-winded, aren't I? That's perfect. I mean, it's what the people that's want. why this is a, a podcast. There's no hard outs, radio term. Yes, and, uh, you know, long. Yeah. yeah, I'm becoming a pro. Long, long form. That's what we want. I mean, this isn't a, a topic you want to, 
you know, hash out in five minute segments. So we, yeah, this, that's what we want. And we don't have to cut away to like check traffic and weather, man. So no big deal. Traffic to w- and weather together <laughs> yeah. on, on the on eights. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, well, thanks Jim so much again. for all your information and thanks for the beer. And we're definitely going to have you back soon. Oh, I hope. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you guys again. And this has been an excellent uh, adventure for me and uh, gosh, we barely scraped the surface of what I thought we were going to talk about. <laughs> I know. Are you, are, am I going to see in a few weeks? Were you invited to the Firestone Walker invitation? Oh, I hope he, I hope so. That would be awkward. <laughs> me? No, no, I wasn't invited. I was demanded. I was like, you're going. So. <laughs> but uh, I think we're going to come up and see you after that at some point. I think the 25th of June, Jeffers and I had talked about coming up and visiting you. Excellent. I'll add that to the calendar right now. You're the man, Jim. Thanks, Thanks Jim. for joining the show. All right. Wow, that was a really good show. Yeah. Another uh, overtime show, but uh, yeah, a lot, a lot to dive into with Jim, and we're definitely gonna have to have him back because you know there's there's so much more to get to, and with all the different strains they're using, the unique approach they're using at Firestone Walker Barrel Works. It's it's a lot to get into. Uh, if you want to go visit them, they're open seven days a week now. Come out to Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Fest. It's in a couple of weeks, and yeah, try and get some of that new sour opal, brother rosé, and the agrestic. I think what do you say in August? That's going to be released sometime soon. Uh, They're releasing lot, stuff all the time. A lot basically. larger format. So check it out and uh, check out all of our podcasts. This has been the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. <laughs>